This podcast is powered by the leading at the top of your game development experience. If you would like to work with Karen and the shockingly different leadership team to up-level the leadership execution acumen within your organization, visit developingyourgame.com to find out more. I think what it does for people, myself included, is it makes you adaptable and teachable and you can connect dots and you can kind of slot into different things. Welcome to the Lead at the Top of Your Game podcast, where we equipped you to more effectively lead your seat at any employer, business, or industry in which you choose to play. Each week, we help you sharpen your leadership acumen by cracking open the playbooks of dynamic leaders who are doing big things in their professional endeavors. And now your host, leadership tactics and organizational development expert, Karen Farrell-Rhodes. Hey there, superstars. This is Karen, and welcome to today's episode. You know, one of the most powerful, innovative tools used in the world of business is design thinking. Now, a large number of companies and industries have used the process, uh, which is also frequently called design sprints, to uh, quickly problem solve issues or determine the best course of action based on the desires of their target audience or their end user. Now, I am extremely passionate about design thinking and frequently work with corporations to facilitate their design sprints. And my guest today shares this same passion with me. But what's really cool is that she adds a unique twist to it. Kunar Behal is the founder and CEO of Mindhatch, which is a consultancy that helps organizations create the conditions for innovation and creativity to thrive. Through Mindhatch, Kunar delivers a unique mix of expertise in design thinking, organizational improv, innovation facilitation, and diversity and inclusion. That's a mouthful, right? We also talked today on the episode about the learning she has gained from her new book called I Quit, where she shares stories about the value of quitting what's not working and pivoting to more promising opportunities. So be sure to listen to her addition to our leadership execution playbook and my closing segment called Karen's Take, where I share a tip on how to use insights from today's episode to further sharpen your leadership acumen. And now enjoy the show. Hi there, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. This is Karen, and I am just tickled pink to have on today's episode a great colleague of mine, Kunar Bahal, who is the founder of uh, Mindhatch, which is a consultancy that really helps organizations create um, the conditions for innovation um, and creativity to thrive. Um, and they are just super dynamic, as you will soon learn. So welcome to the podcast, Kanar. Hi, thank you so much. I'm so happy we're finally doing this after I had to reschedule more times than I care to admit. Um, I'm really glad that Time is here. The time is nigh. Yeah. <laughs> no worries at all. We both have very busy schedules, but this is the ideal time. This is the time yeah. that was meant to be. So <laughs> so are you ready to give us a sneak peek into your own leadership playbook? 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If that, if that is what, what is required, I will comply. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I know you're going to have a lot to share. So <laughs> no worries. But to start it off, um, for as much as you feel comfortable, um, we'd love to hear a little bit about your um, personal background. If you can just share maybe, um, you know, where you grew up, um, a little bit about your life growing up and a bit about your personal journey thus far. Sure. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, stop me whenever you want to stop me. Um, but, uh, um, sometimes I feel like I have a lot of life left to live and other times I feel like I've already lived like 17 lives. Um, so, um, uh, so I, I grew up in rural Ohio, uh, a kid of immigrants, uh, Indian immigrants, although my father actually was born and raised in, in Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously grew up traveling a lot, both to visit family in Africa and in India, but also just traveling a lot internationally. I think for a long time, I'd been to more countries than I had U.S. states. Uh, that might still be true. I should do a count. Um, uh, yeah. And then I, I uh, escaped rural Ohio and went to college in New York City. And it was like a fish to water. Loved it so much. Um, my first kind of career aspirations were to work in the entertainment industry. Uh, on the production side, so kind of like the business side of, of entertainment was my interest. And then at the end of college, after spending all four years of college, kind of dedicating my internships, uh, if not my academics, but my internships to, to that field, um, I decided, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and so, um, so what I did do was go to like my kind of second passion at the time, which was politics. And I... Uh, uh, went and got a master's degree of international relations, and that led me into kind of my second career attempt uh, as an NGO worker. I worked for an international um, nonprofit development uh, organization um, for several years, uh, and uh, it's a whole book about why I left that industry, um, but I did, uh, and I went into the private sector, um, and I uh, was an innovation uh and strategy consultant at Deloitte Consulting for a few years. And then from there, I uh, was very much inspired by my time there. But what that inspiration did was um, uh, uh, encourage me to leave and found my own company, which is MindHatch. Wow, that is absolutely amazing. And we're going to talk about Monhatch in just a, a mm -hmm. second, but just wanted to drill down on a few things. So first of all, um, probably outside the podcast, we're going to need to compare notes because uh, I think I've visited over 35 countries. I consider myself oh. a citizen of the world. So oh. I would love to share travel experiences and yeah. cultural experiences at some point. Absolutely. <laughs> and the other thing I, I'd love to drill in on a little bit is, um, you know, it's more popular now for individuals to uh, transition and try different industries and companies and segments. And I'm just curious for you, um, how was it transitioning your career to a totally different industry so many times? Were there your challenges? Did you gain just additional insights and perspectives? Uh, I think listeners would love to, you know, hear about um, multiple, multi multiple disciplinary um, focuses on their careers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I can definitely share like parts that were hard because certainly there were, you know, it wasn't all unicorns and rainbows. Um, but then parts that made it easy or 
or parts that made it feel like no brainers. You know, I I think, I think on the, the no brainer side of things, like what made the decision to change easy was just having the facts laid bare before me about where I was and kind of really learning firsthand that, Oh, this is not a good match for my values, you know, and, or my skills, um, and, or what I hope my career to be here is not possible. Um, and so I think it was really just, that's what made kind of the decision to switch like easy was because I had new information that I could not have possibly had before. Um, and then I just chose to act on that new information, right. And kind of really just iterate, you know, and, um, and be experimental. I think, um, I think even though I was always pretty, unfortunately, career minded from a young age, like even high school and college, um, I think like, uh, I never, I never thought to myself ever that like the signs of success is sticking at one place forever. You know, um, even yeah. if I might have thought I would do that before going into something, you know, it never felt like a failure from that m- measurement because that mm-hmm. was never my measurement, you know, for a career. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. And Absolutely. then the things that made it hard were obviously, you know, I think it's more acceptable now, which I'm so grateful for about at the time, you know, you're looked at pretty askance of like, wait, what, what? Like, what? You know, and and you always worry about like, oh, I only spent two years there. You know, what is that going to show? Or, oh, my gosh, it took me a couple months in between jobs to find something. And it you feel like you're always on the back foot trying to kind of explain yourself away, um, which is hard, you know, um, to, to do that. Um, but I and then I think the hard things also are just, you know, I think just like acknowledging like, wow, I was wrong. Like I thought I was going to be right about this, but I was wrong, you know? And so it's hard to like not beat yourself up about that and then know that it's honestly not your fault, right? Because again, you got new information you couldn't have had. Um, And then I think the other thing is, uh, I think one thing that's maybe given me the confidence to make so many changes has been that I, I was never keen on specialization, you know, like um, my undergrad degree, even my graduate degree, very multi and interdisciplinary, you know. And so and I really, um, really believe in that kind of education, you know, because I think I think what it does for people, myself included, is it makes you adaptable and teachable and you can connect dots and you can kind of slot into different things, more different things than say if I had, you know, just studied accounting my entire life, you know, um, I no no knock on accountants. I love my accountant. Um, but the first thing I could think of, <laughs> yeah, that would be hyper specialized. Yeah. yeah. No, I love that. And, um, and I just wanted you to share a little bit about that because, uh, you know, I, I believe there are a lot of people in the workplace who are trying to find their niche. Um, some of them are, like you that have a variety of interests and in different areas and want to try things out and that it's okay if you are have the courage to do that and um and you it's okay to explore that as far as mm-hmm. um, some of your career options and it's also okay if you found your passion and your your magical industry it's also okay to stay there a few years yeah, you know and kind of go deep so um 
So anything, I thought that was interesting. Uh, I, I also now would love to talk a little bit about how I think one of the areas that we initially connected on was our mutual love for design thinking yeah. and exploration. But I want to combine that with um, what you do at Mindhatch. So would you mind, you know, kind of sharing an overview of some of your areas of focus at Mindhatch? And then maybe yeah. we can talk a little bit about uh, design thinking and how that is such an impactful method uh, for leaders and their teams. Yeah, no, I'd love to. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, so at Mindhatch is my company I founded nearly nine years ago. Um, and uh, as you said in the introduction, you know, um, we're all about helping you create the conditions for innovation and creativity to thrive. And so um, true to my kind of interdisciplinary mindset, you know, the, the things that we do I view more as like methodologies that can be applied, you know, um, more so more so methods than services, right? So, so one methodology we use is um, what we trademark as organizational improv. Uh, I, I personally have been an improv comedy performer for over a decade uh, and an improv teacher, uh, and so it was another one of those no-brainers to kind of fold it into to Mindhatch when I founded it. Um, so it is really applied improv. So applying the principles and behaviors and mindsets and skills behind improv theater and improv comedy, you know, to the workplace. Um, for a lot and of what is some of the what's some of the magic that you see that comes out of that when um, teams experience organizational improv? Yeah, I mean, they can be small changes and big changes. You know, like the big changes can be it's a totally different culture change and a way of working, um, you know, like by through experiencing something like that together on an iterative basis. Right. And then I think maybe at the, maybe you can call it smaller level, you know, just kind of like cohesion and connectivity and mutual vulnerability and humility that can come about from, from doing that together. Um, as well as of course, you know, like, specific kind of skills development, you know, um, you know, we've done sessions using improv as the teaching method, you know, for, or the training method rather, uh, for like communication skills and innovation skills and customer service skills. And, you know, it can be applied to a lot of things because it is such a, such a human endeavor, you know, um, much like work is, you know, and so, um, so I think it can be, uh, be applied in a lot of different places. Yeah, it can be. And, you know, I've had, um, some experience, not nearly as deep as the experiences you've had, but I've had some experiences in taking, um, organizational improv classes and what I've seen, um, it witnesses, you know, just a building of confidence yeah. of teams, um, through that shared experience. Mm-hmm. Um, where you're, to be honest with you, it's a little scary and a little vulnerable sometimes yeah. when you're going through it. <laughs> but when you learn how to uh, enjoy and laugh and learn and build um, those skills, people become out more courageous mm-hmm. um, and connected, as you mentioned, um, as a team. So I think that work is so valuable for organizations and, um, and, to your success, um, you know, I think a lot of uh, organizations see that as well. <laughs> oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. So organizational improv is definitely one of our methods. Um, and I, I kind of like a little offshoot of that is we also are applying improv to the DEI uh, needs mm-hmm. that exist in, in, in companies um, that we have a diversity and inclusion improv show called White Privilege, Black Power. 
Um, and it's, uh, it's not a training, it's not a workshop. It's very much like a show, but then plus a Q and a after where, um, uh, we will, uh, when we're all trained in DEI, you know, we will answer questions and kind of like provide support and resources to folks about things that are going on. Um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, and so that's organizational improv. Um, we also do uh, facilitation work, uh, as, as might've been obvious from the other things that we do. Um, so usually because of our innovation expertise, it is around like innovation needs, such as ideation, you know, filling the pipeline of an innovation funnel. Um, but sometimes it can also be like strategic sessions and, um, you know, retreat sessions, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And then I say design thinking for last because I know you wanted to <laughs> we talk about that. But well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, design thinking uh, is a, a big part of our work, um, basically human-centered design using, we'll talk more about this, I'm sure you and I will, but, um, <laughs> um, but basically it's a, it's a methodology for creative problem solving and solution development, um, and one that really uh, is led by, in spirit and in method, by insights you gain from real customers. That's right. Um, yeah. And so we do both the capacity building side, you know, going into companies and training their people on what design thinking is and how to use it and how to apply it to their particular uh, kind of work. Um, also do kind of the cons- consulting side of it, you know, like going in and being the embedded, you know, design strategist or design thinking facilitator, you know, for a team and kind of guiding them along through the end to end process. Um, and even like a little bit of coaching here and there for people who just need like a couple hours a week to kind of get some advice on, on, uh, doing it on their own, um, within their companies. So, yeah, that is fantastic work as you know, and I'm very passionate about, (laughs) about, uh, that type of, uh, medallion approach for, um, learning and I'm just curious for what you see with your clients, um, of course, there's usually a problem that they're trying to solve, right? And we kind of help work with them to set up and narrow it down to exactly, um, you know, what you're trying to solve and to narrow the focus. But I'm just curious for you and your clients, um, what do you see the leaders really trying to um, achieve when they book design thinking consultations with you all, because there's, you know, so many other offerings out there by um, companies. Um, Why do you think it's such a hot method that Hmm. they want to bring in um, and have their teams experience? Well, I hope it's a hot method. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah. So I think, um, uh, I think my observation of uh, when I've been brought in by leaders I, I think uh, one kind of experience I've observed is like, I think sometimes leaders will be like, oh, you know what, we need this because we have this goal, we have to create this product or this service, you know, and it's, it's a little bit kind of tactical and it's about like what will be produced by using this methodology. And that's mm-hmm. great. That's a great reason to bring in design thinking. Don't get me wrong. Um, but what I do feel, especially in, in the, the trainings that I do, what becomes abundantly clear really early on is, oh, wow, in order, by doing this work, we are changing our culture. But then also in order to do this work, we have to change our culture. You know, Um, like I find that at the end of my, um, at the end of my uh, training sessions, the capacity building sessions, you know, I always leave time for questions, of course, and hang out and 
And the questions are rarely like, oh, wait, in that method, what was step two that we did? You know, the, the questions are always around like, how can we get buy-in and support to do more of this? Or here's a cultural or leader challenge I have that's going to prevent me from carrying this forward. How do I, how do I navigate around that or how do I solve that? So that just kind of tells me that like, yes, like if you're going to do it and do it well, like it, it requires a, a change in, in mindset and, and the way you work together as well. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think probably leaders like they, they're, they're smart, right? They see that happen in the room as well. Right. And they're like, Oh, okay. I thought this was just like a tactical, let's get shit done kind of thing. But oh, also, <laughs> oh, also, not only have we uncovered insights about our customers, but we've also uncovered a lot of insights about our team and our company and, you know, how, how we can, you know, make really proactive changes moving forward. Okay. I'm just going to high five you on that because that's the number one (laughs) thing. High five. High five. Um, The number one question I get um, when, you know, our firm does that type of consulting. Um, it's they enjoy the process of design thinking, but it is the how to get it done, how to execute it in the environment that they're having to navigate through. Yeah. And you know, we purposely add and leave time to have those kind of rich discussions and provide follow up with leaders and decision makers to try to help them in that space because if they don't identify a path um, Mm -hmm. to being able to execute, um, then it was almost all for naught. I mean, they kind of shut down and go back into the way we used to do things mode. So um, you're so right in helping um, with the organization effectiveness piece of that, um, infusing what they're wanting to do into the culture and having an action plan to do that and course correcting as they start rolling mm-hmm. things out. Um, yeah. Do you find this same thing, something similar? I do for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like a lot of companies, especially like legacy established companies are kind of built on a fiction of linearity, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. plug and chug, right? And, um, and design thinking, like even though it, it is decades old as a methodology, you know, really turns that fiction on its head, you know, of like, like, like problem solving is nonlinear, right? I mean, I have a, a whole article written about how design thinking is basically the scientific method for innovation, right? It's not, it's not new, you know, like I, I hope any day now people will stop viewing design thinking as innovative and it will just be like the traditional way of doing things, right? Like conventional way of doing things (laughs) because it's so logical, you know, and it's a, it's a risk mitigating and all that. Um, um, but, um, but yeah, I definitely, I definitely see that, that kind of additional, you know, um, challenge presented to leaders where they're like, I mean, I think it's also helpful, you know, despite, you know, I, I often deliver workshops, you know, uh, to my clients, but I still want them to understand that like, you know, uh, workshops aren't solutions, you know, yeah. like um, they are not. And yeah. so I, I do vehicle for conversations yeah, to help yeah. generate. <laughs> yes. And so, yeah. so I do take some pride that like, oh, yes, yes, we did do this like two, three day design thinking session and you have great outputs for it, you know, for the task at hand. But also I, I do I do take pleasure in like the realization of, oh, wait, 
it can't stop here, you know? Um, yeah. That's right. I love that. Well, um, let's now move to talk about your book, um, which is a totally different <laughs> subject, but it's <laughs> fascinating. First of all, congratulations on the publication mm-hmm. of I Quit. Um, can you share with our audience a little bit more about um, I Quit and a couple of the key points that are there within? Yeah, I love to. So um, the book is called I Quit, The Life Affirming Joy of Giving Up. Um, I wrote it mostly in 2020. So yeah, I was one of those annoying people who wrote a book during the pandemic. Um, uh, I didn't learn another language though, so um, I didn't so, either. No worries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, it, it really is—it's a collection of stories I collected from real everyday people about how they summon the courage to kind of upend the status quo and quit things in their lives. Um, because we all know we're all victims of the status quo, which is that quitting is bad. Quitting means you're a failure, you know, or couldn't hack it or, you know, that, that sort of thing. And so, um, um, and I, in my life, as I kind of walked through earlier, like my circuitous career path, you know, like that was actually, uh, in those moments of transition was actually the, the genesis of the idea for the book because I found myself like, like, uh, I, I was realizing firsthand for myself that like, oh, okay, so I was wrong about the NGO world. I don't want to work there, but I'm still not a failure, right? I'm still capable of doing things, you know? And so I I kind of had that demystified for myself just through my own experience and changed my own mind from one of like an annoying linear thinking perfectionist type into one who was like more embracing of change and how positive intentional change can be. So that was like the personal side. And then when I started MindHatch, I was going on a lot of like, just I'd go on coffee dates with anyone who would just to be like, turn this business. What do you think? You know, anyone. And at the time I was on the East Coast, I was living in Washington, D.C. And kind of the the vibe in Washington, D.C. is if you go on like a coffee chat with someone, you basically spend the first five minutes just reciting your resumes to each other of like, that I did this, then I did that, then I did this, then I did that, right? Um, yeah. uh, and not, not bad or good, just an observation <laughs> about my eight years in D.C. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I found myself, like, interrupting, probably rudely, just to be like, wait, 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 you said that you used to do that. Like, why, why did you stop doing that? Or you said you left that graduate program. Like, tell me why, you know? And I, I just found myself being really naturally curious about – you know, people, people not stop doing keeping it. doing the thing they were doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, um, and I got really fascinated basically with what I realized later were people's quitting stories, you know? And mm-hmm. I, I found that like, in those moments, I, I felt like I understood people more deeply um, mm-hmm. than if I had just asked them about their greatest successes, you know? Yeah. yeah. So what is one like nugget that you would love the listeners to take away as they think about quote unquote quitting or transitioning or whatever pretty word you want to put behind it to (laughs) a new um, thought or opportunity? Yeah, I think like, I mean, there's a lot of takeaways, you know, from the book um, because the stories are so varied. Um, but I, I think the first thing that comes to mind is like this idea that, you know, 
quitting is a choice, of course, mm-hmm. um, but so is not quitting. And I think like a lot of times in our lives and for a lot of people, we find ourselves just living our lives with inertia and we're just yeah. kind of putting off the big decision, right? Mm-hmm. And like, we're just going to stay here and be safe and just do this and put that off. But you just staying here and playing it safe, if that's what it is, is also a decision, right? That's and true. so if we can kind of conceive of like inaction as a decision, then we can say, okay, well, is this decision aligning with who I am, what my values are, what my trade-offs are, you know, um, I guess what I'm saying is it can't hide. You can't hide, <laughs> you know? Not so, at all. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want you to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I hear you on that one. Um, and this kind of dovetails into uh, my next question. You know, I, I love to ask um, all of my guests if there were any of the seven tactics on um, that are critical, critical to great leadership execution that really popped out for you. And I'm, I'm curious um if there was one and if so, would you mind sharing and why? Yeah, there was a one that immediately stuck out. <laughs> it was the, the second one, I think it's um, the leading with courageous agility. Yeah. And now um, I think I understand why now that you talked yeah. about, I quit. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like looking in the mirror, right? You yeah. Know, like, um, you know, unclear future. I mean, embracing un- uncertainty and ambiguity, right. And mm-hmm. being honestly, sometimes excited, by that. Um, yeah. I think also just like standing up for what you believe and like doing the right thing. You know, I think a lot of That's my funny. transition stories were because of realizations that where I was was not matching my values, like, mm-hmm. like moral or professional, you know? Yeah. And so, um, and yeah, I'm just kind of uh, getting some clarity around what my own trade-offs are you know, mm-hmm. and for everyone that's different. Right. Um, and, right. It, and it should be different. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but for me, it was like, Oh, this is not, I can't exist in this space and, and put up with this based on what I'm going to get out of it. Like it does, it's not a match for, for who I am. Yeah. I love that. And I know that, you know, you, you obviously have had such a dynamic, um, work history or career history, I should say. Um, I'm curious for yourself, what does it take for you to lead on top of your game? Um, when when do you, are there certain conditions or things that you do or um, things that resonate with you that need to be in place in order for you to be or deliver it your best self? Yeah, you know, I think I, I think moments when I feel like I'm being a good quote unquote leader mm-hmm. are honestly moments when I feel like I'm in partnership with a peer and when I'm collaborating, you know, and that, mm-hmm. that feeling can and has come from an intern of mine, you know, it doesn't have to be like position level peer, you know, it's just um, when, when there's a sense of like, let's work this out together, you know, like we're both bringing equal, equal things, you know? And so I think that is when I feel, uh, to use an overused word, but like in flow is like, when yeah. I feel, like leading collaboratively. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and not coming in with like, a I have to be the one to come up with the answer. I mean, I've never been like that anyway, you know, but, um, right. 
Yeah, I think I would much rather kind of have like shoulder to shoulder, you know, um, work being work being done. Yeah, I really enjoy being in the work. Yeah. I love that. And as a female founder, um, what are some of the obstacles that you've had to overcome, you know, moving to found, actually found, find your own, found your own business or establish your own business, I should say. Yeah. Um, what, what are a few of the obstacles that you've had to tackle and overcome? Gosh, you know, it's really interesting. I feel like it's one of those things where it's like, you don't, I, I feel like the obstacles I am sure I have confronted are, are like systemic obstacles, right? Like I, I can't really point to like many like visceral, like in my face, like obstacles because I'm a female founder. Right, but, you right. know, when you're a female founder, your world becomes other female founders and yes. you kind of absorb kind of like what they've confronted and you read a lot about the business world and just the world in general, you know, and how things are stack up, stacked up against you. So you kind of start to have some like, huh, I wonder, I wonder, was that thing four years ago due to that? You know, so, so definitely like my suspicions are raised. My hackles are raised as they should be for all female founders. You know? sure. <laughs> um, but I, I can't point to like one story, one anecdote where it felt very, very present, you know, um, mm-hmm. for me personally, I think it's different also, you know, like I'm not like an investor driven company, you know, mm-hmm. I think that that world is totally different for women mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. when you're kind of quote unquote self-funded, you know? And so, yeah. um, so yes, yeah, so I think some of the accidental choices I made with my business, um, kind of shielded me from the worst that I know, I know female business owners encounter every day. Yeah, Yeah, I totally agree. I totally understand. (laughs) Well, I know we're running a little bit short on time, but um, I will not let you um, off the hook uh, (laughs) without doing our final segment, um, which is called full disclosure. Mm -hmm. Um, There will be no gotcha questions. So don't don't be afraid of that. But I just love to ask a few fun questions for you to share uh, sure. with the audience, if you don't mind, if you're game. I'm always game. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, my first one for you is, um, what are one of your pet peeves? Oh my God. I, okay. I, you said I was trying to be not salty, but Go uh, ahead. Go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it when people, and it's usually men, like hawk loogies in public. Yeah. Oh my God. It is just, it like, like I want to say nails on a chalkboard, but nails on a chalkboard doesn't bother me. Like it's that I just, it, I, I, I get like that movie kill bill when she's about to murder someone. I get that, that alarm noise. Oh, it is awful. And I'm just like men in suits are doing it. I'm like, you can afford tissues or hanky. I don't like, understand that for the life of me. That's why it's hard for me to watch baseball because they do it all the time, oh, yeah. right? And yeah. I love sports, but that's hard to get past. So, I mean, we are like sisters from another mother, really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, just, I just hate it. I, oh, it's just like, it's like, I think the only people who mm-hmm. can do that are the unhoused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. that's it. Nobody else gets a pass. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, next question for you. Um, what is one of your favorite ways to decompress? 
Hmm. Hmm. I, I'm pretty like erratic. I don't think I have a very good, like, as I say, these days, self-care practice. So I don't do anything. I don't do any one thing a lot, but I think I do a lot of things a little bit at a time. And so Mm -hmm. among them are just spending time with my dog. She's such a cartoon and just such a stress reliever, just insanely, insanely amazing. Um, I love, uh, what I call tubbies, which is just tub soaks, (laughs) just tub soaks. I just call them tubbies. Yes, um, tubbies. That was uh, new that, for me. Write yeah. it down. Tubbies. That's yeah. a um, just like putting bubbles in there and, you know, reading a book nice. or watching TV show on my iPad. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And then I also really enjoy reading for sure. Um, yeah. And cooking, you know, I think, I think things that, um, oh, definitely building Lego sets. I am a really oh, big fan of Lego sets. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a time where I feel not only like productive, but also mm-hmm. focused in a way that I'm not in any other aspect of my life. You know so, what? I bet that's because of your creativity gene or your DNA. Maybe. I bet I can imagine what you create with the logos. <laughs> you know, so I don't free build, like, you know, I don't, oh, you don't rebuild. You know, I buy like the, 3,000 piece sets and, oh, and I create it. Okay. Gotcha. Follow the instructions and I display them in my home. And, um, uh, yeah. Um, so I, I do, I do get the, like the, the pre, the pre-made ones to build, but yeah. it's still really meditative. Right. And it's still kind gotcha. of, um, it's still like scratches that itch to kind of mm-hmm. do something with my hands, but that's an itch actually I'm trying to like, scratch and more in different ways in the year. I love that. I love that. All right. Well, I'll let you turn the tables on me. And since you've been such a great sport, um, what is one question that you would like to ask me to have me answer? Oh my gosh. Oh, it might be so mundane. Um, (laughs) That's okay. okay. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question that used to be um, uh, a part of, Improv shows I used to do on the East Coast. One of my teachers, we always we'll see if I can do this. <laughs> what, what, what was a recent compliment you received? And how did it make you feel? Oh, a recent compliment. That's a great question. Or it can be like uh, the best compliment. What's like the most meaningful compliment you've ever received? Oh, you know what? One just popped. So a few weeks ago, um, I was invited to be a guest speaker at the Global Talent Summit at mm-hmm. Gallup's headquarters in D.C. Oh. And I don't, although I speak a lot and, you know, teach a lot, I, I don't consider myself like a Tony Robbins or, a, you know, Oprah Winfrey or anyone like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I must say, I think... I think I nailed it because I got a lot of great compliments and got swarmed coming off stage. And so it was, it was a series of compliments. Um, It just kind of reinforced the messaging and the impact I was trying to make on the audience. Mm -hmm. Um, I had gremlins in my head going in about, okay, what in the heck can I do to not be that speaker that bores everybody? (laughs) 
And the <laughs> fact that I got swarmed, uh, even people following me to the restroom afterwards to that point, it just Aww. really warmed my heart. So creepy in like a complimentary way. Yeah, like, yeah. exactly. I was like, can you give me 30 seconds? <laughs> you can do a bathroom hang. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I was uh, very thankful that that had, um, that, you know, I had that great experience. I mean, of course, you know, we, when we all speak and, and present, we always do preparation, but that was just very reinforcing. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. great. Oh, that's <laughs> an experience. Great question. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining our audience today. And, and audience um, members, there will be a ton of information in the show notes. You will not want to miss this episode. We'll have links to Kunar's book, um, some of the resources she, she mentioned, her website. You have got to check it out. And any closing uh, thoughts or words before we finish this episode, Gunnar? Oh, my goodness. Um, put me on the spot. Okay. Uh, closing thoughts. Um, <laughs> it's okay oh if you don't. <laughs> I, think, I think just please, please visit the show notes. Please support a woman-owned small business. And, um, yeah, and thanks for listening. It's been a real, real privilege. Like, you are – your curiosity is um, really generous and you giving me this platform is really generous. So I really appreciate it. Oh, thank, you. thank you so much. Well, thank you again for your time and attention and audience members get, be sure to once again, check out the show notes and we will see you for the next episode. Take care. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed our conversation today with Kunor Behal, founder and CEO of Mindhatch. Links to her bio, her entry into our leadership playbook, and additional resources can be found in the show notes, both on your favorite podcast platform and at leadyourgamepodcast.com. And now for Karen's take on today's topic of design thinking. For those of you who are not as familiar with design thinking, I thought I'd share just a brief overview of the six steps involved in a design sprint. Step one is called empathize. This is where you conduct research to develop a better understanding of your users, customers, or stakeholders. Step two is called define. And this is where you analyze all your research to understand where the true problem exists. Step three is called ideate, where you generate a wide range of crazy creative ideas. Step four is called prototype where you build real-world representations of your most promising ideas. Step five is called test. And this is where you return to your users, customers or stakeholders, and then you get their feedback on your top ideas. And the final step is step six, which is called implement. And this is where you put the vision of the most promising idea into effect and see what happens. And just so you know, design sprints come in a variety of lengths and variations, and they're most commonly anywhere from three-hour sprints to five-day sprints. So if you're a company and you're interested in bringing a design sprint to your organization, check out the show notes where we'll have links to more detailed information. Thanks again for listening and see you again next week. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to the Lead at the Top of Your Game podcast, where we help you lead your seat at any employer, business, or industry in which you choose to play. 
You can check out the show notes, additional episodes, bonus resources, and also submit guest recommendations on our website at leadyourgamepodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn by searching for the name Karen Rhodes with Karen being spelled K-A-R-A-N. And if you like the show, the greatest gift you can give would be to subscribe and leave a rating on your podcast platform of choice. This podcast has been a production of Shockingly Different Leadership, a global consultancy which helps organizations execute their people, talent development, and organizational effectiveness initiatives on an on-demand project or contract basis. Huge thanks to our production and editing team for a job well done. Goodbye for now.